your promises You never change You never fail, oh God So we raise I said this in the first service, but I don't think that I've ever preached a sermon here where um, my friend Scott Shaw wasn't somewhere in my brain speaking to me. A lot of what I know about the Word of God uh, started sitting under Scott's teaching when he was on staff here. So Scott served on staff here for about 10 years. He's been gone for about 10 years. Um, he's been a friend. He's been a mentor. He's been a pastor. He continues to be a friend. Just a couple weeks ago, I talked about uh, that moment in a parking lot where I asked somebody to... Uh, enter into a covenantial friendship that would last a lifetime. Scott was a guy. He said yes, which was a little scary. We're still glad for that. Um, but Scott has been a great friend. Scott and Beth, his wife is over there, are part of our impact. Um, they serve uh, missionaries all over the world in some of the hardest to reach places, and we love having them as part of our, our impact. But today, I am super thrilled that Scott gets to bring us the word. You're in for a treat. And so as Scott gets ready to teach, I just ask you to give him a grace welcome. Thanks, man. Thanks. Happy to. Good morning. I heard Kevin talk about five-hour naps after you're done talking. I'm an introvert, and I'm be done talking after this message, let me tell you. I'm using a whole week of words right now. I will go take that five-hour nap. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for braving the cold. It's nasty. Coming from Colorado, it's about 55 degrees there right now. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, exactly. Hey, we're going to continue our uh, mess or our series in Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter one. If you want to turn there with me, and uh, we're going to continue to pick up where we were uh, was left off last week. We're going to start at verse 27. I'm going to ask you if you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'm going to have it up on the screen behind behind me here. You can follow along in your text if you brought a Bible. You can read along. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. We're going to start at verse 27. And uh, Paul is picking up here with his reflection we looked at last week about what the die is gained to, be in, uh, to, to live as benefit for the Philippians. He's kind of wrestling back and forth over this. And he begins verse 27 this way. Whatever happens, whether we live or die, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending or striving as one person for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Now verse 29 is our key verse we're going to spend quite a bit of time on here. So, so catch what he's saying here. For it has been granted to you. It's, it's a gift. It's a grace given to you. On behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of self-ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also the interests of others. May Father bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is Paul's first exhortation to the Philippians in this letter. He's been greeting them, praying for them. 
talking a little bit about where he's at. He's in a prison, remember, and some of the, his reflections on that dynamic. And then he turns the table in verse 27, and he has the first challenge for these Philippians. And we're going to look at that closely here, but we must catch the context in which he ushers this, this challenge. And the context is verse 29. Both Paul, who is in prison, and these Philippians, who are being harassed in their own community, are in the midst of suffering. And Paul says, two gifts have been given to you. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer on his behalf. And that's one of those, did I just read what I think I just read statements? That Paul seems to be equating the gift of salvation with what he calls the gift of suffering? And what in the world does that mean? We're going to take a little while to look at this. It's common to all of us that we experience, all ki- we experience all kinds of different difficulties in this world. And Paul knows this is going to be a difficult lesson. And that's why he prays verse 9. And we're going to pray that over ourselves today. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 9. This is his prayer for the Philippians. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best for you. This spiritual truth that we need God's love to abound in us more and more so that we may be able to understand greater spiritual truths is a lesson that I've just kind of dawned on me in recent years. That as God pours his love out in my heart, I grow in communion with him. He helps me understand truths that otherwise seem very illogical to me. So, for example, it seems illogical to me that hardship in this world is a gift. And thus, that's why Paul prays this prayer. And so, join with me as we pray one nine over us, asking him to guide our time together. Father, we do indeed pray this verse. We, we pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and understanding, that we may discern what is best, that we may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ to your praise and glory, Father. Please, by your spirit, give us insight into this passage we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul says in verse 29, it has been granted unto you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And remember, Paul's in a prison. He's in a stinky, stone, jail, Roman prison. There are no federal oversight committees making sure that the prison system of the Roman Empire is not abusive. This is a bad case. It's, it's likely mold, rat-infested, cockroaches, cold, disease, nasty other guys in there, human waste. This is a bad place. But that never comes forth at all in chapter 1. He doesn't complain. He's not talking about how awful it is and woe is me. And the Philippians, whom he is writing to because they have aligned themselves with Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, are facing all types of persecutions in their own community. They're being harassed. If they're merchants and business owners, people are avoiding their business. And so it, it is a severe hardship that this group of people is going through. And this can be very confusing for the Philippians. How can this be? Isn't this the Jesus who raised from the dead? Isn't he supposed to protect us from all this nasty stuff? Paul, our main man's in prison, and we're back here, and we're being harassed. What is up with all this? And good question. And that's why Paul launches into this letter. I have written in the the column of my book here at the top of my Bible here at the beginning of Philippians, this is what I have written down. I quoted this out of a book I was reading. This letter to the Philippians' most comprehensive purpose is the shaping of a Christian reasoning, 
A Christian moral reasoning that is conformed to Christ's death in the hope of his resurrection. Philippians encourages us to look our suffering in the face and reckon with it as a part of our being shaped into the life of being in Christ. Thus, the letter is a, as a, is a uh, chiefly one of an assurance that the believer who is experiencing hardship is not outside the will of God, not outside the favor of God. Now, key to this understanding is verse 13. Go back and look at verse 13 of chapter 1 with me. Verse 13 says, As a result, has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains in Christ. Now, your NIV, maybe some other versions may say, for Christ. I have looked at this again and again and again. I really think the proper translation is in Christ. I know these brilliant men and women had reasons for putting it this way, but it's a simple two-letter Greek word in the Greek, and it, it, it means in And this is such an important theological understanding here. Paul is saying that all I'm experiencing as a prisoner happens in in Christ. Let me read this quote that I got from this book I was reading in preparation for this week. It says, being in Christ changes everything. Paul may be in prison because of his commitment to the gospel, but he chooses to interpret it from a deeper level. His suffering is not shaped by his jailers, but by Christ. His suffering is not shaped by his jailers, but by Christ. He does not accept a victimization. He speaks as someone who has radically reversed the power dynamics of his situation. He lives in a sphere of being in Christ. So what does he mean about being in Christ? If we have trusted in Christ, then we have been united with Christ. You see, the Father has been loving and giving his life to his Son for all eternity. And for all eternity, the, the Son has been responding in love back to the Father. And the Father has so enjoyed loving and giving his life to his Son that he wanted more sons and daughters to do that to. And the Son has so enjoyed being the beloved of the Father that he agreed. Christ came to this world that we may be trust in him and may be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And as such, the Father sees us just as he sees his own son. We are now his adopted sons and daughters. He pours out his life and his love. We are in Christ, and no matter what we are experiencing in this life, just like Paul and the Philippians, no matter what they're experiencing, they experience in the context of being in Christ. Now, the problems don't change. The nastiness of life doesn't change. The hurt, the heartaches, the confusions, the mysteries, the rough days, none of that changes. What changes is the reality is that I'm in Christ, that I have a Father who watches over me, a Father who's caring for me in the midst of this. You see, our God is a good and wise God, and he's using this for purposes. So, for example, in Paul's life, he's in this prison, and he basically says, my so-called misfortune of being thrown in this prison is actually good fortune. Because not only is the whole prison guard and all the other prisoners hearing about Christ, but he's saying even people outside of prison are being emboldened by my testimony and they are preaching Christ. And so even though I'm in prison, he says this is a good thing. That's what he's explained in chapter 1. Now he's going to help the Philippians understand that even though they're being harassed for their faith, it is in fact a gift. That God can take the difficult circumstances of our life and use it for good. Let's look at, uh, I'm going to look at a quote here from a, a well-known, or a famous theologian. You probably have not heard of him, but uh, he, this guy's a brilliant writer, Walter Brueggemann. Let's put that quote up there. Suffering is not a barrier to communion with God. Suffering is not a barrier for communion with God, but at least an arena for communion, and at best a resource and an instrument for communion with God. 
So Paul, if I were to apply this quote to Paul, he's saying, the context, the arena in which I am communing with God right now is this prison. And God will even use it in my life in such a manner that he will use that prison to launch me into deeper communion with him. And he is saying exactly the same thing to us. That the hardships we experience in life aren't actually God taking his hand off of our life. He is not neglecting us. He is not impotent and incompetent. My problems don't outstrip the competency of my God. He is still able to be God in my life. But he has a wisdom that I don't necessarily fully understand. His ways are mysterious. So let's look at a couple of passages here from Romans chapter 5, James 1. Before we look at this, we need to be mindful that Romans was, the book of Romans was written after the book of Philippians. And just like all of us, Paul's thoughts and understandings of God's ways are developing. And so Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, all at the same time while he was in this Roman prison. A number of years later, he wrote this letter, his, his letter to the Romans. And his theological thinking, his understanding of God's salvific ways in our life is much more developed in Romans than even it is in Philippians. There's nothing at error in Philippians, but it just continues, his understanding grows. And so this is what he says in Romans 5. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What he's saying is basically, we can't wait for heaven. We rejoice in that anticipation that one day we'll be in God's glory. And now notice what he also says. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. When I am in a hard time, I am called upon to endure through that hard time. When things are going well, I I don't have to to endure through the, the good old times. When things are going well, who needs endurance? You just enjoy, right? When things get difficult, then he calls upon us to endure. You can look at any central, any passage in the New Testament that speaks about hardships. It will talk something about patience, endurance, or perseverance. Every single passage. It is a key quality trait of a mature follower of God is that we endure well. Why? Because endurance, in the midst of us enduring these difficulties, God is using those circumstances to shape our character. He's transforming us into the image of God. Let's look at James 1. He essentially says exactly the same thing. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. It doesn't matter what kind of trial you're experiencing. If it's hard for you, then it's hard. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and not lacking anything. And this not lacking anything is not talking about possessions or acclamation or anything like that. It's talking about, it's talking about our character is not lacking. All these other verses that we're going to look at here in the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, have to do with relationship. And the only way that I relate well, the only way I can live out these other passages about not being concerned about myself but being concerned about your interests is that my character is developed in the image of Christ so that I learn to love more. And one of the ways, one of the, one of the elements that God uses in our life is suffering. Now, I need all kinds of elements in my life to grow up. I need truth. I need the word of God. I need, I need community. I need other people in my life. I need time, apparently. It takes, I don't know about you, but I'm not done growing up. I still have some more maturing to do. So it takes decades to grow up. I need love. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need all kinds of things. But for whatever reason, God has created the human soul. Now hear me. He has created the human soul in such a manner that one of the elements that we need to reach matur- maturation are adversities. The redemptive process requires suffering. And if you doubt that, 
Let's begin where our redemptive process begins, the suffering of Christ on the cross. The redemptive process of the human soul requires suffering. Jesus Christ died for us. He had the greatest suffering. And we will look next week, and we will see in the passage from uh, Philippians 2, 5 onwards, that he had the greatest suffering that any human being has ever experienced, and he now has the greatest exaltation. Nobody else will bow the knee before anybody else but the Lord Christ in the name of to the glory of Father. Nobody's going to bow their knee to me in heaven and say, wow, Sky, you're great. We will all be bowed before Christ because Christ has received the greatest name and the greatest exaltation, and he experienced the greatest suffering. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. Some of you know my story, some of you do not. I was on staff here until uh, the beginning of 2004, and Beth and I joined Barnabas International. We, we pastor missionaries. We travel the world. We shepherd. We pastor. Uh, give spiritual guidance, coach, train, mentor, teach missionaries all around the world. We have the greatest privilege, my wife and I, of working with some of the most amazing people in some of the hardest places in the world. These people have seen some incredible suffering, many of them. In 2005, the fall of 2005, I went to Cambodia, and there was a, a pretty significant dengue fever outbreak in Southeast Asia. Dengue fever is a tropical fever. It's transmitted just like malaria through mosquitoes. It's a mosquito-borne virus. You get a mosquito bite, and you get this tropical fever. Unlike malaria, there is no inoculation. There's nothing to take to prevent it, and there's no cure. If you get it, you just got to write it out. And I got dengue. And my symptoms, it's got a 10-day incubation time, and my symptoms didn't kick in until I was back in, in Denver, uh, flying into Denver, and I had seven, eight wonderful days in local hospital where they tried to figure out what to do with this guy who's got dengue. You know how many dengue cases have been in Colorado Springs? Not very many. And uh, all they can do is uh, monitor, monitor your symptoms and, and, and keep you stable. And uh, I had a pretty bad case. It took me a full 14 months to completely recover from that. But I, but I did recover. I got my energies back. About two years later, I received another invitation back in Cambodia, this conference to speak. And Beth, my wife, went with me this time because as she tells the story, she was going to protect me from every bug, every, everything, and she, was going to, she, was going to, she got me covered. Well, unfortunately, I got sick. I don't know what I got. I got some stomach thing. And that's not that big a deal. You go to these, these developing countries, that's not uncommon. We returned home. I wasn't feeling well, and it progressively gotten worse. And on a Friday night, we, uh, we went to the emergency room, and um, I had some type of an episode. My, my vitals plummeted. They thought I was going into cardiac rest. I don't know that I was. But they had no idea what was going on inside of me. And, you know, medical folks flying all over the place, uh, obviously pretty intense couple of moments. I was in the hospital for three days. So infectious disease doctors, cardiologists, neurologists. I had all these, uh, this array of symptoms. They could tell I was symptomatic. But every test they ran on me, every lab work, Negative, normal, neutral. They could not figure out what's going on. And this launched me into one of the most difficult times in my life, emotionally and spiritually. I, I described it as I was driving down the road of life with God, and we drove out into this broad valley, which was a wasteland. I didn't recognize where I was at, and he pulled the car over, and he looked at me, and he said, get out. And I got out, and he drove off. And there I stood. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where he was. All I knew was it was dark, it was confusing, I was afraid, I felt terrible, no doctor could help me. I was, for a year, I was seeing all different types of specialists. I felt like I was dying. I don't know what it feels like to die, but I felt like I was, that was it. I mean, I felt awful most days of my life. I was so angry. 
I said, so this is what it's like. I go to these crummy countries, and I serve your people, and I get sick. And you know what he said to me? Nothing. For six months, I sat there, and it was as if he was someplace else doing something. But he wasn't with me taking care of me. It was absolutely confusing. About a year later, we ended up at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, again, trying to get some answers to what was going on in my body. Again, ran the whole battery of tests for three days, neurologists, cardiologists, guys, I didn't even know what their names were. I was seeing all kinds of people. And I had this neurologist who was actually an Indian from Delhi. He was from India, and he had a theory. He had seen a lot of tropical viruses before. And his theory was is that I had c- contracted a virus and it got into my nervous system and it had disrupted my autoimmune system. And so the best theory that, they, uh, that, that I walked away from from Mayo Clinic after these days of testing was that I had a, a, an autoimmune dysfunction of some sort and that I fall within the spectrum of chronic fatigue syndrome. And to this day, six years later, I still live with that. Even this morning when I got up, I did not feel well. Now you need to know I have begged God to heal me. I've had elders pray over me. I've been anointed with oil. Um, All of my friends have prayed for me for years. And and I've stopped asking for healing, not because I don't believe he will, because I don't think he will. Is he able to? Absolutely, I've seen him heal people. Absolutely, he's able to. But I've asked for physical healing, and God has used my physical illness to heal me, to heal me spiritually, to heal me emotionally, You see, I am a different person than I was six years ago, and I am convinced that I would not have learned what I have learned through this illness without the illness, that he has used the hardships in my life to mature me in ways that nothing else in my life would have matured me. I am convinced of it. I am a different person today than I was back then. This is what it means to be in Christ, that Christ takes the difficulties of your life. Do you have an unfaithful spouse? Do you have a child who's walked away from God? Do you have a supervisor that's just awful to work for? Are you, are you lacking a job? Are you got bills that are insurmountable? Do you have health problems? Do you have emotional struggles? What is it is that it's your adversity in your life? In Christ, the tables are reversed. The pain isn't gone. The confusion might not be gone. My physical symptoms are with me every day of my life. But in Christ, I have a Father who loves on me and dotes on me, and he takes that which is hard and confusing, and he redeems it and uses it to create and shape me into the image of Christ. And Paul says, not only has it been granted to you on behalf of Christ to believe in his name, but also to suffer in Christ to suffer for Christ, to suffer with Christ. You have a good and wise and kind Father. And no matter what you are experiencing, He is with you in that. He has not left you alone. You have a good and wise Father. Do you believe that? This is the truth. He is with you. Now, I can't tell you why. Why did I get sick? I don't know. Why did I have a friend die of ALS in his early 40s? I don't know. That is confusing to me. But my God is a wise God. Go to his Isaiah 57 passage. I forgot to do this last service. I want to look at this again. Notice this passage. The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. 
Devout men are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. This is one of those passages that helps me to realize that my God has ways about him that I don't understand. Listen to how we speak. Isn't that a tragedy that he was taking from us so young? It's so sad that she's gone. It, it, I, it, it seems awful that he died at such a young age. Our perspective is that this life is it, that this is all there is. This is the best place to be. Isn't it awful when we leave this place? God's saying, no, you don't understand. This world is full of evil and suffering and hardship. Yes, it's full of beauty, like looking at the Big Dipper at night. It's full of wonders and joys as well. But in the next life, there is no evil. There is no suffering. There is no hardship. When I lose a close loved one, it hurts. There is grief and loss and sorrow, and I don't understand why. I don't understand God's ways, but I trust him. He is a wise and powerful God. And for that one who has been taken, that one who is gone, they don't experience any more of this hardship. It is a kindness of God to usher us from this life to the next one. We have a good and wise father. In Christ, like Paul in that crummy prison, like the Philippians being harassed, like me with my health, like you with whatever you're dealing with in your life, in Christ, the power dynamics are changed. We are not victims. We are not helpless, wandering orphans, wandering this world, wondering who will care for us, why doesn't anybody love us? That is not the truth. We are, we are loved by the Father. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to preach this truth to yourself. You get up this week and you're having a hard day, you remind yourself, I am in Christ, and in Christ I have a Father. You have a Father. And he is caring for you no matter what the circumstances say. And he is using the difficulties in our lives to transform us and shape us into the image of Christ. So he says in verse 29, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Now, this is the context of this passage here. This is the context in which we want to look at these other verses. Because, you know, it's easy for us when we're having hard times to say, ah, this is a crummy day. I don't have to be nice to anybody now. I get up and I feel crummy in the morning. I'm going to go down to the kitchen. I'm going to make my wife feel crummy. So we're crummy together, right? That one doesn't usually go over too good. No, Paul says, this is the context in which Paul is going to give these Philippian believers this challenge, and he gives us the same challenge as well. He says, it doesn't matter how bad it is, because no matter what it is you're experiencing, it's happening in Christ. And in Christ, he expects us, he holds a very high standard of how we will relate to one another and the community that we lived in. So let's go back to verse 27. Read with me again. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. No matter what happens in your life, there is no excuse. We are not victims. We're not helpless. Live your life in your manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will, that you all, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. This is his first challenge, to stand firm in one spirit. The spirit is small s, not capital S. It's talking about us being unified in heart and spirit. We as the believers of Christ 
no matter what's going on in our lives, are to stand in one spirit together. This is a military term, this, this standing here. It's the idea that soldiers have taken some ground, and no matter how difficult it gets in the, bite, in the fight, they are not going to budge one inch, not given one inch of turf up. Now, you all know that in this community, in this city, there are forces that stand against the kingdom of Christ. And Paul is saying, no matter what's going on in your lives, as a community or as individuals, link arms, stand together, don't budge a ground. Don't budge anything. Stand firm in one spirit. Second thing he says, he says to contend as one man, one person for the faith of the gospel. This contending, you could also translate it as striving. This is an athletic term. Um, you think of about an athletic team. All the, all the parts of that team have to, to play together in conjunction to move the ball forward or get the basket or whatever they're doing. It's the same idea as that we as a, as, a, as a team, if you will, will link arms and move forward. And this church is doing some amazing stuff in the community. The medical facility over here. There's a counseling center two doors over. Got Eagle Sports Club stuff going on. Tutoring, Alpha. These are all ways that we link arms and we strive together in this community. Now, I want you to take note from this passage that there is no room for passivity. There's no sidelines in this passage. We are standing together. We are striving together. We're not sitting on the sidelines thinking, ah, nobody's looking out for me, nobody's calling me, I don't know what to do, I don't know where I belong. Everybody is to be standing and striving together. And if you just don't know where to fit in this church, please find one of the pastors. Find somebody. Roll in here on a weekday or whenever. There are places in this body that need you to stand in this community. Now, let me ask you, are there health needs in this community? Are there spiritual needs in this community? Um, are there social needs, educational needs? Are there? You expect the government of Detroit or Gross Point or Harper Woods or whatever to solve those problems? The church of Jesus Christ has an opportunity to demonstrate the resurrected person of Christ no matter what the circumstances are, and this world is dying to see that. This is our opportunity, Grace Church, on this corner, in this community. Keep at it. Let me tell you, you guys do a great job standing and linking arms with folks like Beth and I. Um, about, a, about six weeks from now, Beth and I are going to be in Turkey. Modern-day Turkey is, is very close to where Philippians is. It's the same region over there where Paul's in prison. It's the same reason. Right now, to this day, the nation of Turkey demographically has less believers now than when Paul wrote this letter back in the first century. There are estimated 5,000 believers in the nation of Turkey. I don't want the percentages, but it's around 1%. Right now, the average missionary lasts in Turkey less than three years. It is so oppressive, um, abusive. The government will harass you. The spiritual forces will harass you. It's a Muslim country. It is illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity. If you do so, you are likely not to only be ostracized, but possibly killed. Missionaries get there with their high ideals of doing their work, and they don't last. There is no way churches are going to be established in regions where the church doesn't exist in three-year time period. We need folks to go in there and stay in there. And by you guys linking arms with Beth and I, we're trying to help missionaries to find means and ways to stay in difficult, nasty places like Turkey for many, many years, that the Church of Jesus Christ may thrive in that country. Because just like Detroit, Istanbul, and all those other countries, they need the Church of Christ. 
That's how we stand together and strive together to do this work. One more thought here, going over to chapter 2. Read with me in chapter 2 here. Look at this last challenge. It's going to talk about being humbly self-sacrificing. Now answer this question. Do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? Verse 1, do you, have you experienced encouragement? Okay. Do you have any comfort from his love? Have you ever experienced any comfort of any type from his love? Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? This is capital S, Holy Spirit. We are united with the Father and the Son by the Spirit, and we are united together by the Spirit. You experienced that? Any tenderness and compassion that you've experienced from God? Paul says, then, if you have experienced these things, make my joy complete. And here's the challenge. Be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing, not a thing, out of selfish ambition or feigned conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Now, I'm telling you, folks, I don't live this passage very well. It is quite natural and easy for me to be more concerned about me than about you. Because after all, if I don't look out for me, who's going to look out for me? No, 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 no. You see, I'm in Christ. I have a Father, and Father is looking out for me. I don't need to look out for me. I can be concerned about you. Now, I'm going to meddle in your lives here a little bit, okay? I can be five minutes out of Detroit Metro Airport, and I'm reminded I'm in Detroit. This is the most aggressive driving city I have ever been in my life. Man, you either get out of the way or you get run over. It, it is amazing. Did you? That was a 98-year-old lady who just ran me off the road. Did you see that? Well, you know, I, I can cop quite an attitude behind the wheel of the car because that's not a person anymore. That's just an inanimated object over that car. And I can get up in their bumper and I'm wagging my finger in their mirror. You can't cut me off. Well, you know what? That is a practical, everyday, me being more concerned about the interests of others. And Paul doesn't say, just be concerned about the interests of other believers. He says, everybody. Now think about Christ. He already modeled this. When we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. He has shown us the way here. It doesn't matter if people are kind to me, considerate of me, thoughtful about me. You see, I have a father, and I'm in Christ, and he takes care of me. You may not but he will. And so therefore, I am freed up to care for you. And frankly, this is why I need the difficulties in my life to shape the character of my life, to be in the image of Christ, so that I will respond like Christ will towards you. I will care for you. I will be responsible to, or responsive towards you. I won't be vain and conceited and self-consumed with my own stuff. This is the gift of a good and wise God in our lives. There is no room for selfish, self-centered, being interested in me. Now next week, Doug's going to be preaching from uh, verse 5 onwards, and we are going to see the supreme example of he who is God, who laid that aside, became a man, not only a man, but a slave, and not only of a slave, he died the death of a criminal on the cross. If Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, will deny himself and humbly live self-sacrificing, then they who are in Christ are called to do the same. And, and we can, it's not just about me trying harder and harder, it's about me turning to God and say, please conform me to the image of Christ. Please pour your love out in me. Please help me to live this way. This is what the world is dying to see. 
they know what selfish arrogance looks like. The world is dying to see the life of Christ. The self-denying ones who give their lives away for other people, who will give away their lives and their resources for the community in the name of Christ. These challenges don't come to people who are living in a really good time, the Philippian believers. It comes to people who are in every phase of life, every struggle of life, live this way. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and as I do, um, Ed and Trish are going to come out, and they're going to sing a song. Just give us a moment to kind of reflect on this. This is a beautiful song. So as, as they come out, pray with me. Father, we, we want to thank you for your word, and um, I resonate with whatever thoughts are in the room of, I don't like this, I don't understand this, I just want this, whatever this is, to go away. Um, you know, Father, it's confusing for us that you've created for us for life and for joy and for freedom, and yet so many times in life we experience hardships. But we want to trust you as a good and wise and kind Father. So I pray for that work in our lives by your Spirit. Amen. What if a thousand sleepless 
with the greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy and what if trials of this life the rain the storms the Are your mercies in Stand with me, if you would, please. Uh, prayer team, we have some folks down, down front here who will pray with you. Please, whatever you are facing in this life, don't leave today without somebody praying with you. If, 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 this, if you're struggling with this or you, you just simply want somebody to pray with you, that you may walk in the reality of being in Christ, please do so today. Receive this blessing. May you go forth in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, aware of the truth that you are in Christ, beloved child of the living Father. And no matter what darkness may come your way, you live in that darkness, that hardship in Christ. Go forth with peace. Have a great day.